Welcome to the PEBC Podcast. My name is Michelle Jones, and I am the host of our series on phenomenal teaching. This series is a collection of conversations with authors, classroom teachers, education leaders, and staff developers whose work connects with the PEBC teaching framework. In each episode, we will explore how the strands of planning, community, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment all cultivate student agency, equity, and understanding across the curriculum and grade levels. Thank you so much for listening in. PEBC staff developers Satya Wansdeck and Sarah Littmanberger are joining us today to talk about TALK. The PEBC teaching framework highlights discourse as an instructional strategy that supports student agency, equity, and understanding. John Hattie's meta-analyses have highlighted that student discourse has an effect size of 0.82 on student achievement. Our dear colleagues, Chris Devani and Samantha Bennett, are often credited with saying, whoever is doing the talking is doing the learning. Today, we are going to dive into the importance of classroom discourse and ways in which teachers can support meaningful discourse in virtual classrooms. Satya and Sarah, welcome to the podcast. I can't wait to talk about talk. You both work in schools outside of your work as PEBC staff developers. So let's hear a little bit about what you're up to. Sathya, let's start with you. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, Yeah, so this year as a staff developer, I'm really lucky to get to work with Colorado teachers as well as teachers nationally. And with that work, my work is always focused on facilitating thinking um, around the workshop model, thinking strategies, and discourse. Um, so that's really the core of my work. But like you said, um, I get to work outside of PEBC this year, and I am and the new Dean of Instruction at Beach Court Elementary, which is very interesting at this time with all the ups and downs and changes um, that are happening. And so what I've really noticed this year is I'm really taking care of teachers' mental state um, during this time of change and really... I I used to say that I teach teachers, but this year I'm really working alongside teachers and just helping us get through what what does this new way of teaching look and sound like? And so I'm really just navigating that and just trying to be here for teachers and um, think about all the different possibilities that there are. Wow, Sathya, that is such important work. And it sounds like you have this incredible perspective from working with so many teachers from all around the country and here in Colorado. Sarah, how about you? Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. It's so great to have you. Tell us a little bit about your work with PEBC and the work that you do outside of the PEBC. Thanks, Michelle. I'm excited to be here with you. Um, My work with PEBC, I've been here for 11 years now as a staff developer. And I've, like Sathya, gotten to work with teachers locally and nationally. Um, For the last six years, I've also been the instructional coach at STEM Lab and Adams 12, and my role there largely has been facilitating teacher thinking and learning and our, excuse me, our professional development and leadership team. Um, But like Sathya, this year has really been a lot of um, emotional support and support in a lot of different ways. As a coach, um, a lot of the time it's coaching and planning and um, reflecting on what's working and what's not. And this year, it's really been a lot of just helping teachers find what they need in order to serve their kids. So this year has definitely looked different than it has in the past, but I still love the work and the people I work with. Absolutely is so different. And I think that's what we're going to really focus in on today. I just can't wait to dive in with both of you. You two are such close colleagues and friends, and you do a lot of thinking together 
so much creative problem solving. I know you support each other with your coaching and also with your professional development and your presenting. And you recently collaborated on a blog post for the PEBC. And that blog really featured the importance of promoting discourse during virtual learning. And so with so many teachers teaching virtually or in a hybrid setting or in socially distanced classrooms, there's just a lot on their plates in terms of planning and facilitating learning. So why should discourse be a priority? Why is that important to both of you? So Athea, you want to take this one first? Take it first. So um, discourse is such a priority because that's how we learn. That's how we see our world. We get to be, we get the chance when we talk with others to almost dive into another world and see those other experiences. And so in any situation, we learn from others. And so even as you said with the research of John Hattie being a 0.82, I mean, for our students, that's up to two years worth of growth that we could see from students if they're the ones doing the thinking and the talking and the listening. And so I think it's just so important that we are really focusing on discourse because we're in silos right now and it's really hard to see what's going on. And so we need to talk to others and share our experiences and listen to others' experiences to just grow in this time. So Sarah, what are you noticing about discourse in classrooms? Why do you think it should be a priority? I completely agree with what Sathya said, that discourse and by talking, it's how we make meaning of the world around us. And it's how we make meaning of our relationships and our experience. And it's how how we create the world that we live in based on how we process it. And so I think that's important for people on an emotional level and that that's how they connect with others. That's how people um that's how people learn and figure out who they are and figure out who other people are. And to me with learning, that's, that's the way we make meaning of everything that we learn. And, you know, there are different people who process differently, but I don't believe there's anybody that's ever hurt by, by processing verbally and talking through what they learn. Um, So to me, discourse is a huge way to make sure that learning is happening and to allow people to have the opportunity to make deeper meaning of what they're, what they're going through. I believe so many teachers would agree with both of you with, with what both of you just said. <clears throat> that talk in the classroom, really, we think about you know thinking floats on a sea of talk. I love that quote, and um, I know that in a regular classroom in a regular year, teachers spend a lot of time building up rituals and routines and norms or public agreements around talk. That it's just one of those cornerstone practices, if you will. The discourse strand of the PEBC teaching framework outlines the importance of intentional planning, incorporating rich tasks so kids have meaningful fodder to talk about, setting expectations, finding structures for talk, access, language development, and facilitation. So when we think about talk in today's classrooms, what might teachers want to consider when they're planning student discourse? As I think about that, this year seems different, but there are a lot of ways that it's always the same. As you think about planning for discourse, whether it's remote or in person, the things you need to consider, the the people and their purpose and the process, you know, thinking through who it is you want talking and what are they talking about? And do they have something purposeful and meaningful to talk about? And how, what process will facilitate that, that meaning making? So to me, a lot of the things that we consider in the classroom hold true this year even more 
because we have to be even more intentional and even more purposeful with all of the ways that we set kids up for successful discourse. Um, we're just doing it in new ways. And I'll, I'll say honestly, I at the beginning of the year thinking about how to do this was totally overwhelmed and intimidated, thinking, how do we get people to have meaningful conversations when they're staring at a screen and they can't be sitting next to each other and they can't be in the room? What I realized is I had sort of like thrown away everything I knew and thinking that there was nothing that would carry us into this world. But there is so much that if we if we take the background knowledge we have from what we do in the classroom and how we build relationships through discourse, that carries us through here. We just need to do it in some new ways. Wow, Sarah, thank you. So, Sathya, what do you want to add to that? What are you thinking? Oh, I, I totally agree with Sarah in that thinking that just best practice is best practice. And if we believe that student thinking is worthy, then we need to open up those times and space for students to talk. Um, but one thing that I've noticed with working with teachers this year and going through the same things that Sarah was going through of just like, can I do this and what does this look like? And we really had to stop and step back and think back to our beliefs and go back to those core values. And what is our stance and what do we really want out of our students? And really focusing back on those beliefs and those core values just to remind us of what's important and that there's a lot of busyness and craziness going on. But down at our core, what do we really want to see in our classrooms and setting setting up our classrooms for students to share their thinking and setting up those safe places. And so I think the only thing that I would add to that is just going back to your beliefs and reminding ourselves of what we really value and what's important and then holding on to those through all of those changes and having that ground you and stay as a rock as we think through this time. Wow. So I think that's really interesting to just take a moment to pause and just to really process some of what you were saying around, you know, thinking about our beliefs and our intention and what do we already know? What's in our schema or our background knowledge from, you know, those best practices that we can bring into this context. And then Sarah, I think it's interesting how you really mentioned that we need to be really mindful of, kind of is it meaningful? Like, are we intentionally planning talk that's meaningful? And I'm inferring that it's partially because of just the, the limited amount of time, if you will, and the limited amount of, of focus that we can kind of, you know, give in this virtual environment. So I'd love to kind of dive into some examples. And I'm wondering if you can share some structures or some facilitation moves that have been successful in virtual classrooms. I know that in your blog post, you wrote about you know, ways to kind of alter the turn and talk and a fishbowl. So let's hear some of, you know, what, are you, what are you playing around with in virtual classrooms or in hybrid classrooms that's really working for kids and really working for students? And I'm not sure, Sathya or Sarah, who wants to jump in first, but let's, let's hear some examples. Take us through some, some classrooms, if you will. I think Sathya is just dying to go first on this one. No, I'm just joking. I'm happy to if you want me to. Um, I, I think thinking about some examples, what I've seen that's working is really small baby steps and really being intentional with um, gradually releasing discourse in the same ways that you would gradually release discourse in the classroom. So I think about some kindergarten teachers that I've worked with that are building in teeny little turn and talk kind of structures, but it's just, it's a quick two minute breakout room for two minutes at the beginning of their morning meeting every day where those kids get time to just talk. Um, and I've seen that in a handful of classes. I've seen others where 
they make it's it's pairs every single time because they know that those middle schoolers or those older kids are going to be much more comfortable in pairs than they will be in groups. Um, I, I feel like it's the baby steps and the intentional gradual release is key. And that's also going back to thinking about what it is that those kids need to be able to do to have those conversations, whether it's like knowing how to turn their mic on and off or it's knowing sentence stems or it's knowing what the, the conversation protocol is. All of those things need to be so purposefully planned and gradually released, but kids are capable and they'll do it when they're given the opportunity. Sarah, that's so interesting because I know so many teachers that I've been working with and coaching and kind of having in some of my study groups, one thing we've been talking about is that virtual learning is like learning how to go to school all over again. And so at the beginning of the school year, every teacher, regardless if you're you know K or 12, it's all about gradual release. It's all about how does this classroom, what is the structure of this classroom? How does it function? How do we come in? How do we go out? Where do we find our materials? You know, how do we move around the room? And so when we think about discourse in a virtual space, Sarah, you're making me think about those types of norms and rituals and routines with gradual release. It really is how do we move around this classroom, but it's just a different classroom that we've never been in before. Yeah, I read an article this morning that was talking about, you know, kids being digital natives, but we take that for granted in a way that they are not necessarily digital natives in school. So they might know how to navigate through Google or through whatever, you know, drive or whatever it is that they're using, but they've never done school remotely. And so the digital native argument doesn't always work. And so those kids need to learn and be, um, be exposed to the ways to do it effectively. And so do the parents. Like we all need this training and this learning and we're all in such a place of growth and learning right now um, that we can't take certain things for granted because they don't, it doesn't work as well if you take them for granted at times. Wow. So Sarah, those baby steps, gradual release, being really like having great situational awareness. What is new? What do kids have experience with? What do parents have experience with? And then what do we need to support and grow? Seems like great first steps. And how do so you scaffold it along the way so that they, they, they get it? Yeah, just those baby steps. So Sathya, from your perspective, what's working well? What are some protocols or structures that you've seen teachers using? What are some examples that you want to share with us? And I'd love just to add on to some of Sarah's thinking with that. Yeah. And just... What I've, I've noticed that in the classroom or virtually, I think transparency is so important when rolling kids into a new protocol or routine where discourse is necessary for learning to happen. So I've, I've been playing with this where I start any protocol or new routine with a slide that just talks about what we're doing, why we're doing it, because we need to know why, and then how, and going about how about this. But the last question that I always like to ask is, what do we need from our community? What are our community needs for this to happen? And so I like to ask that because then I can use the slide again as a reminder for norms, but also it's important to roll kids into the protocol. And not, a lot of times we roll it out on them, which I take from Scott Murphy, you know, and thinking about don't just tell them what we're doing, but have them be part of that community. Um, and so what's funny is I do a lot of this work with adults. Um, I did this uh, just a couple of days ago with some adults. And as I asked the adults, you know, it's hard for adults sometimes to share, you know, just as it is with our students. And so 
after asking them what we needed for the community, there's about 30 seconds of silence. So just waiting for them. And finally, I just wrote on the screen, talking, you know, and we all just laughed, you know, and just had that moment of laugh of breaking the ice that yeah, talking would help as a community norm, you know, um, but it was just funny, but then everybody got to share and everybody was excited. Well, we need this, this, and this. And so um, I think also just some time, it's, it's about that transparency, but sometimes we need to break the ice just to make it known that this is a good, safe place for us to talk and share. Um, but just that, that need for laughter too. And as we go through these, these routines and protocols, but um, I just, I think it's just most important to remember that no matter where you are, that that best practice is still best practice, like what Sarah said. And then it's just about finding that right platform or tech tool or question. You know, sometimes we don't need to go mess through all these different things or all these tech tools to get kids talking, but it's just about a really good question um, that's worthy of their thinking. Wow, that's interesting. I, I really appreciate the way you brought up community, Sathya, because I think that is that's a big piece. And that's something in our regular brick and mortar classrooms, we spend a lot of time developing for students is relationships with one another. Or for those listeners who facilitate adult learning, we do the same thing. If it's, you know, ongoing professional learning, or if it's just a single institute or a single event, I know that all staff developers work really hard to build that trust and community and, and, you know, have those opportunities for people to interact with one another so they feel safe, so they feel like they can talk. Having those lighthearted moments for humor all seems really important. But let's dive into this idea of an elegant question or a juicy question or a juicy top, like topic, right? Because it's true, we need something to talk about. So let's go there. What are you guys thinking about topics, tasks, questions? One thing I was thinking about right before we got on was, um, you know, you want kids or grownups to have something meaningful to talk about, meaningful that they care about, that they're interested in, um, that, that, that has purpose for them. But I think once in a while I hear teachers feeling a little intimidated that like, there's not always this big, amazing, great question for them to talk about, but sometimes it's a matter of taking the little things and making a better question of it. Like Safia has always used the term naked math as like two plus two equals four. Well, if I put kids into a room and say, what's two plus two, they're going to have no conversation because it's four and then they're done with it and they move on. But if you give them a really interesting question, just on that simple naked math, they can have a great conversation and share their thinking. So like last night, my daughter had a question. It was She's working on um, subtraction and using regrouping as a strategy because you, you've got to regroup or borrow or whatever you want to call it. And it, she got the right answer. And I said, what's a way that you could visually represent that so that you can show your teacher you know your thinking? And so to me... That's different than 78 minus or 76 minus eight. She has something she can talk about. And if you put kids into a breakout room and say, show, talk about two different ways you could represent your thinking for this so that I know you understand it or that you can show your brilliance through a picture, even if it's not a huge prompt, it's meaningful discourse. Wow. So, so the, like, like, you know, my big elegant question really actually is, a smart question or a question that pushes thinking. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be kind of one of those essential questions, if you will. But there's it can be a- for both. I don't want to mm-hmm. say that your elegant question isn't important because there's it's so important, but it doesn't have to be every breakout session. You know, I think that's what intimidates teachers. Yeah. It's so important to think about, Sarah. Thank you. So when we think about, you know, those questions, the questions that push thinking, 
Let's talk a little bit, and I think this idea of you know naked math is kind of interesting too. Let's let's dive into tasks. How do we how do we facilitate talk around rich tasks? What is that all about? I, I think the biggest thing, and kind of adding on to Sarah's thinking with this, is she was talking about the process. That when we really think about tasks, it's not about the product at the end. But what's the process in which we want students to go through that task and being able to break that down with those questions like what do we notice what do we wonder you know let's collaborate what are you thinking now how is your thinking changing um and so i really think about uplifting those questions around the process so students have something to to talk about because a lot of times and i think i always kind of go to math because that's kind of in my my wheelhouse but um thinking about that naked math that Sometimes it's scary to talk about an answer because you don't know if you're right. But if you're talking about your thinking, how can that be wrong? And so just getting kids to feel that, again, that community and that safe space where they can take risks and share their thinking uh, around the process is so important. Hmm. That's true. I hadn't thought about that. You know, it's when you have that open-ended kind of opportunity to talk about your own thinking, you're not going to be wrong. You shouldn't be. Yeah. Uh, Right. There's so much more to say. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Gosh, we have really covered a lot. I mean, thinking about this idea of virtual discourse, really, you know, right into what are your beliefs? What are those instructional best practices? What do they look like and sound like in a, you know, brick and mortar classroom? And how might that be tweaked to a virtual classroom? We've talked about the importance of gradual release. And how we do really, really need a scaffold, not only for our students, but perhaps for their caregivers, so that everyone can be successful. We've talked a lot about asking questions that promote thinking. And we've talked about, you know, rich tasks or fodder. You know, we need something interesting or meaningful to talk about. Any other suggestions or anything else you're thinking about when it comes to virtual discourse? I think one thing for me is... um just for teachers to, you know, believe in themselves and just remember that, you know, if, if you know this is worthy and if you know that this is really important, to fight for it and to, you know, raise that bar and just believe that if you know talking and having your kids think is important that we need to create those spaces for it and to, to not shy away from that. And I think that through all this, these changes, that we can almost have like fear of paralysis, like paralysis of fear. Like we get scared and we just get paralyzed and we're like, I don't know what to do. Um, But just know that we do know what to do and just, just take a minute to stop and reflect and, um, and just try it. This is our time to play because we don't know any better. And so why not try on some new things right now and take some risks for ourselves. And so I just encourage teachers to take risks, try things on and play with it more than that, more than ever. Absolutely. Sarah, how about for you? What are you thinking? Yeah, I really agree with what Sathya was saying. I think the risk-taking is scary at times, and I think there's that paralysis by analysis, like what's the right format and what's the right question and what's the right way to hold thinking. It it doesn't have to be that scary sometimes. Just like teachers have great knowledge of best practices, and they knew what they could have done really well in the classroom. And I think that paralysis of like, do I use Kahoot or do I, you know, that the technology sometimes gets in the way, not be, not only because I wouldn't say not because, not only because of the glitches of the dropped meetings and the dropped calls, but because we have that paralysis of how do I, how do I do this with technology? Um, 
it can be simple. And I think teachers need to trust their instincts and rely on they have great knowledge of how to do these things and simplifying the process down to, okay, if I would have had an anchor chart, this time I'm going to use a Google slide or Jamboard. Like it's just get your one or two go-tos for how you help hold thinking and then jump in and take those risks with, with breaking kids out and trusting them to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting too. Like, you know, just even, you know, we haven't talked a lot about technology, even though our topic has been virtual discourse, we haven't really talked about the tools or the resources that are out there. But Sarah, I think, you know, you just gave some, I think really important um, advice, if you will, just to have a handful of tools that are going to help you really, you know, reach your goal and to meet your purpose. And so when we think about the tools, the the list is infinite. I mean, there's so many amazing tools out there. When you're coaching teachers and if they're feeling a little bit, um, a little bit nervous about the technology or maybe a little bit intimidated, are there any kind of go-tos or any ways in which you would kind of advise or, or help coach teachers if they wanted to make a selection or if they wanted to choose a couple of, of tools, what do you think is particularly impactful? We know we've talked a lot about, you know, breakout rooms, but beyond that, are there any other scaffolds or any favorites that you have? I, when I listened to your podcast with, um, with Jen and Carrie and Patrick, they were talking about at the beginning of the year feeling like they needed to do these fancy things, but it really comes down to like the most, like less is more. Carrie said again yesterday, um, to me, I'm a, a huge fan of Google Slides. It's like an anchor chart on your computer that you hold onto and it's a tool you have forever. So I think um, that's my go-to and I'll be honest, I am not right now a huge risk taker with trying lots of different technology because um, I use the ones that are that are simple and easy and hold the thinking as opposed to the, the flashy things. I wish I were... I, I wish I knew more of the flashy things, but that's not where I've put my energy this year. Um, so to me, the the basics that hold thinking and help facilitate conversations. What do you think, Sathya? Yeah, I I agree that I'm I'm going with less and more less is more and really focusing on what's the thinking I want and is this tool going to help me with that? Yeah. Um, and so really starting from that place versus the tool place. But I love Jamboard. I miss my chart paper. I miss my markers. I miss my post-its. And so I am a Jamboard queen and I love it. So I am, I use it just, just to get all voices in the room. And I just, I love Jamboard. And then I also really like whiteboard fee um, to use with kids because we're missing our whiteboards and we're missing being able to see some student thinking and things like that. So those are, those are some of my go-tos that I, that I, that I keep in my pocket and play with. But I think all three of those, it's really interesting to think about how you can use those from a teacher perspective or a, te- or a student perspective. Because I know with like Google Slides, I've seen teachers doing amazing work where there's a, sh- you know, a shared Google slideshow, but then kids in breakout rooms are creating slides and adding that to the bigger slideshow. And then you get to see all the collaboration and work happening. But then also from a teacher perspective, they can serve as anchor charts and it's that permanent record. Same with whiteboard and same with Jamboard. So I think that's that's that like elegant simplicity, right? It's like thinking about a couple tools, thinking about what kind of thinking do I need for my kids? And then what are all the ways in which I could use this tool? What are all the different applications and ways to, to kind of tweak that, if you will, or use it in different ways? You two are amazing. 
And I'm so appreciative of your ideas and your experiences and just helping us think about what's most important when it comes to discourse or and, and what's the same. You know, the, the classroom has obviously looks and sounds different right now, but what actually transfers and how does it transfer? As we wrap up, I want to give each of you the last word. And so I'd love to hear from each of you, what is your hope as we head into the second half of this 2021 school year? What are your hopes for teachers and students? I really think that um, my hope is that teachers realize just how important relationships and community are when it comes to students sharing their thinking and that teachers have it in them to do this work. Um, I was in a training today where one of my mentors, uh, Sheldon Reynolds from DPS, stated that we should build a house that can take on any weather. And that really resonated me with all the changes that we're going through. And when we know what we value and what we want, then we can build that house and create those structures and routines that will support students virtually or in the classroom to feel safe, to share, to grow, and just to love learning. That's why we're friends, Safia. I feel like we have so many of the same ideas. I think that, um, I think like Safia said, the relationships as well as just the social emotional health and well-being of kids and teachers is what is just crucial right now. Um, I think what I hope for teachers is that they can cut themselves a little bit of slack um, and take care of themselves in the ways that they can. Teachers by nature are perfectionists and super hard on themselves and got into the perfection or profession, excuse me, because they want to make the world a better place for the kids that they work with. And I think um, times like this are really hard because teachers can't or don't feel as successful as they would in the classroom. And that's everything from just not having the feedback of a kid running up and hugging you or a smile because the camera's turned off. Like you don't get the, the warm fuzzies this way like you do in the classroom. So I don't think teachers' souls are being fed quite the way that they, they normally would. So I hope that they're taking care of themselves and looking for the little ways that they're making the world a better place for those kids. And for kids, I just want them to keep, keep being resilient and learning and trying and saying when they need help and reaching out. Wow. Well, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for joining us today. We hope our time together provided inspiration and information. In closing, PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, and works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding, as described in Phenomenal Teaching by Wendy Wardhofer. We now provide customized virtual and on-site professional development, coaching, institutes, and digital courses. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org.